Hello and welcome back to episode 144 of the Live to Walk Again podcast. My name is Jeremy Dixon, your host as always, and with me... Ricardo Benavides. Ricardo Benavides. Uh, Brandon's nowhere to be found. He's in Vegas gallivanting around, doing God knows what. He's trying um, to feed his family, Jeremy. Yeah, he's, he is at a... Uh, a work-related work, event. Yeah, a yeah. work conference. Anyway, good for him. Hope he's having fun. Hope he's uh, getting getting some. Hope knowledge. he's a big winner. He's a big winner already. But, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, he's not much of a gambler, but uh, he yeah. So I'm sure he's having a good time. He doesn't drink and he doesn't gamble. Like I don't really know what the benefits. Well, there's of Vegas a lot of entertainment are. there. Yeah. So I'm sure. Yeah, he's and it's probably, a work it's a work conference. So he's yeah. good, man. I'm sure he's staying busy. He's probably at Legoland. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm he's picking up something sure. for Ryder, right? Absolutely. I think Riot Rider's a little old for Legos, but not, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, man, I, I'm super excited for this episode today, Ricardo. I like I am for every episode. Um, but uh, before we get to who our guest is this week, I want to talk about uh, last week, me and Brandon had the opportunity to go uh, to Climate Pledge Arena, which is like the new uh, kind of state-of-the-art arena in... Seattle. Um, yeah, it used to formerly be the Key Arena. If yeah, people are familiar with that. Yep, yep. And uh, we were able to. We got these courtside tickets. This girl we went to high school with just gave us courtside seats to this preseason NBA game that was going on. Um, you know, and, and everybody kind of came decked out in their Sonics gear and whatnot, uh, just trying to trying to convince the league to give us a team back. And uh, we got to sit courtside. It was just super i mean we we're like three rows i was as close to the uh portland trailblazers bench as we are sitting to one another right now which is about four feet oh so you could smell, five feet smell them see the oh sweat. yeah i couldn't smell them thank <laughs> goodness but um no it was it was wild like a couple uh, a couple of the seahawks players were sitting back like behind us and off to the side like just like brandon we have better seats right now than the seattle seahawks do and you know, that's kind of saying something, but, um, yeah, like, yeah, the, Sean Kemp, Gary Payton, like all the like old school Sonics oh, were there. Really? It nice. was crazy, man. It was, it was just an epic, epic night. Uh, we got like taken, a, they, so they, they tried to accommodate us. That's what I wanted to really talk about was that climate pledge. So they tried to accommodate us, had us come out on, um, I guess the opposite side of the floor from where the players sit kind of on the media row and there just like wasn't I needed like there's like a foot and a half of of like an aisle way for me to get through that just was like way too narrow for my chair to fit through but they were super accommodating they're like let's see if we can get you on the other side so they had, you know they were calling back and forth on their radio luckily we got there super early so uh, we were able to um, you know, it was it wasn't completely packed out, and the game wasn't going on when we were having to deal with the the seating issues. Because I kind of figured we'd have some, it'd be better to get there early just to be on the safe side. And uh, but yeah, they were able to get us into some seats on the other side. So, so getting down to the floor, you know, that was you know I've been there a number of time with uh, Dominic for the WNBA games and a mm. couple cracking games. Um, but um, getting into the arena, how was the parking and the levels? Because you know they. That floor is like, you know, 50 or 100 feet lower right. than the original arena was. So. Yeah, I mean, it was no big issue. I mean, we just parked in a parking garage down, kind of down the street from the arena. And okay. we ended up going and getting something to eat before the game. And then uh, 
and kind of looped back around to the arena. And yeah, we just went in through the. Were there ramps or elevators? Yeah, no, down? you didn't even need uh, like to get in the the main uh, on the main corridor um, was fine. Like they they had let us know which entrance to go through, so we went to that. I think it was like on the north northeast side of the building or something. Okay. Um, so they told us which entrance to go through. Uh, we went through that one and then you kind of come out on like the main concourse level and then um, they were just like, take that elevator down and oh, okay. did that. And uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty fun, man. It was, uh, I mean, I felt like it, it's, it was way better. I mean, I'd been to key arena for a number of concerts and, and Sonic's games back before the Sonics left um, in 2000. Uh, eight and you know had you know i mean like the seats they, they were terrible seats back then like you could only get seats up on like the upper level um the ones on the hundred level were pretty you know you're pretty far back these like they legitimately have like some floor seats that you could sit i guess you're not technically on the floor you're like up a step or two yeah um at, like on a on the next like little level up but i mean you're you know, like I said, you're four feet away from you're the like players. You're like on the platform so. where the hockey players are, probably. Probably, yeah. 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 Well, that's anyway, great. so that was cool, man. Yeah. It was good to see that Yeah, they... I saw you send me a picture, uh, text me a picture there, mm-hmm. saying you were having a, a good time. Yeah, we were. It, it was it was epic, man. We had such a good time. Like, the NBA needs to bring the Sonics back to Seattle. Let's go. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I had, had a great time doing that. It was, it was good to see the accommodations are kind of, you know, top of the line. And the arena is amazing. I mean, it, I know they had to kind of keep the original um, roof line or something yeah, like what that. They did, what the, they did was they lifted. The, so the, the key arena, for people that don't know, uh, was the, originally the part of the science fair for the World's Fair in 1962, 60, 62, something like that. So they actually lifted the roof and dug out underneath it. And so it's still at the same um, site like level yeah, the yeah, that it was. Yeah. yeah. Right. So. Yeah. It was, it was interesting, man. It was uh, very cool. Um, and yeah, I appreciate uh, everybody at the Climate Pledge Arena for, for making things so move so smoothly for us there. Um, you know, good job, Jeff Bezos, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, well, yeah, um, you know, Ricardo, this week I had the pleasure of speaking with Ali Ingersoll, who is the reigning like 2023 Miss Wheelchair USA, I believe, yep. or which Miss Wheelchair America. I get it confused every time. So um, I apologize, whichever one I'm saying wrong. But uh, yeah, she is um, an advocate for especially for insurance related stuff, uh, dealing with this injury. She was, you know, she was injured, uh, back a number of years ago, um, and has really had a, a pretty incredible life since then. And it's gone through some kind of ups and downs and, um, is now in the position where she's helping other people, um, with with their, battles with these insurance companies things like that among many other things trying to get um you know adaptive uh workout equipment covered by insurances like all all kinds of i mean she she is an incredible incredible woman yeah so one of the things that um when i uh, listened to the podcast uh the recording of it there jeremy one of the things that really inspired me about her was that um she doesn't give up she fights through the pain every day Right. right. 
And I think I talked to you before in the past numerous times that one of my impressions of when somebody is disabled and they say they can't feel their legs or they can't move, I don't ever think that they have pain, right? And I'm sure that's an impression that a lot of people have, right? But when she says that she's like on a seven, eight or nine scale of pain every day and to do what she does is freaking amazing, Yeah, you know? And uh, the stuff that she documents and shares with people on how to overcome insurance and healthcare stuff and work on it because, you know, the whole system is set up to beat you down, you know? Right. I mean, uh, one of the things that when I heard that, it reminded me, you know, when I was 40, I had a triple bypass and um, I had just come to and I was at the unnamed hospital. And luckily, Gina, my wife, was there with me and um, your aunt. And um, the accountant comes in, like from the uh, payroll office, and wants me to pay for the anesthesiologist. And I'm not even, like, fully aware of what's going on yet. And they had mixed up my records with somebody else. And so... But it was stuff like that that people have to go through. And, you know, mine was minor compared to the stuff that you've probably had to seen in billing and all kinds of other things, mm-hmm. right? And her story starts way offshore. And I can only imagine what the cost was to get her to the United States. You know? Right. And so it also got me thinking about a person that I knew when I worked at Boeing that took a family vacation and um, they get to Hawaii and they're off at North Shore and he grab boogie boards and a little wave, he comes, he's waving in and it flips him, breaks his neck. Well, insurance didn't pay for him to get back here to the United States. And it was almost $200,000 for a private And where jet. was he? He was in Hawaii. Okay. With his family. And so I wonder if there's um, stuff like that well, yeah, and, insurance, yeah, yeah. you know, for vacation. For I think you, there is yeah, some kind of insurance you, know, you can get for, yeah. especially if you're in another country. But I mean, shoot, you get hurt in Hawaii, you think that's well, not, they're gonna take care of you. But no, mm-mm. that's wild. No. I mean, she was in the Bahamas, like, yeah. and not on one of the main islands. She was yeah. like way out, you know, in in one of the uh, backwoods. The, yeah, one of the yeah. small islands off yeah. the off. The I'm sure very path. nice, but I, I uh, no medical. Yeah, facility. right. Yeah. And that was my thing, you know, because I know, like, my good friend Primo is from the Bahamas, and um, you know, he'd probably be the first one to tell you, like, uh, yeah, you don't bring want, your own band aids. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get injured down the down there. So, um, yeah, I mean, just the fact that she was able, to, I mean, and like the realization, because I'm like, oh well, you know, I say in the interview there when she tells us. Um, you know, about how she ended up at the, the Miami project or there at the University of Miami um, after coming from the Bahamas. I'm like, well, that I guess that was kind of a, you know, a blessing in disguise that you were able to get to that, like such a, a great world class uh, spinal rehabilitation hospital. But she's like, you know, I the realist in her was like, I knew by that point after 22 hours uh, post injury and having basically no medical attention up to that point that, you know, she's like the chances of me uh, being an incomplete and not having a complete injury were very, very slim by that point. But, um, you know, luckily, and she did get into a great rehab place, but she had to fight to 
be able to stay in rehab. Um, and, and, you know, it sounds like she has a really, really good team around her, um, or did at least at the beginning. And, and at this point, she kind of is her own advocate, which is so important as well. Well, you know, one of the heartbreaking things in the interview was um, when she talks about, um, you know, that she has a great family, right? Mm-hmm. And she mentions that people at 31 sometimes end up in nursing homes, right? Because they don't yeah. have that support. And, um, you know, kudos to her mom. I mean, but when you're a parent, you know, I mean, just like I am with my boys, you never stop being a parent, you know? You care for your children probably, you know, more than you should. Um, and it sounds like she has a great family, and that's what you need in this case. Just like, you know, you know, luckily you do too. <laughs> you know, you have some great friends and great support, Jeremy. Oh, um, yeah. You know, Absolutely. I mean, and those are the things that you can't um, oh, monetize. Right. You know? I mean... It's you priceless, the, yeah. Yeah, priceless, Absolutely. yeah. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, shoot, Ricardo, let's get to this interview, and we will talk a little bit more about it on the other side. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Jer. All right. This week on the Live to Walk Again podcast, I am so excited to finally get a chance to interview our next guest, Ali Ingersoll, who is Miss Wheelchair America 2023. She is a blogger uh, with does the Quirky Quad blog. Uh, she's a speaker uh, and a corporate disability and inclusion advocate. Allie, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to, to be able to speak with you. Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, this is, this is Excited great. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we were able to finally connect. I know you're super busy right now and, uh, you know, with with everything going on uh, with, with the Miss Wheelchair America and stuff over the last few months. And, um, you know, I just, uh, my first question to most, most of us in this situation is, you know, for anybody that doesn't already know your story, how did you get injured? And, you know, when did that happen? I was in my home in the Bahamas in uh, 2010. I was learning to be a technical analysis day trader. I was quit politics and I took a shallow water dive off a little tiki hut bar in the gorgeous remote location called Cat Island, Bahamas. And I just hit sand and I broke my neck, leaving me a C6 quadriplegic complete. Wow. Wow. So what, um, you know, I mean, obviously the Bahamas is not, I have a couple of friends that are, are from like born and raised in the Bahamas. So that's an interesting uh, connection there. Um, they, you know, I know that the, the medical facilities probably aren't quite as good as they are here in the United States. Like, how did that all work then? They're um, non-existent, actually, on an out island. There was a clinic doctor who was not on the island at the time, and there was one nurse who happened to be there. Um, so I'd done a lot of wilderness survival um, programs around the world throughout my teens and 20s. Um, so I was I was certified in medic first aid. And so I knew I right away I'd broken my neck um, and we kind of did makeshift neck brace. And I had one nurse on the island who put a catheter in me, thank God. Otherwise, that probably would have ended in my death as well. Fortunately, I did not drown. Um, it took uh, multiple med- medevacs to multiple islands hopping around. It took us 22 hours and going to some kind of podunk uh, hospitals on back islands. And I finally got to the United States 23 hours later, just in the nick of time as my blood pressure was circling the drain. <laughs> oh my gosh. So where, where did you end up then in Miami or? 
I ended up in Miami at the Miami project with Dr. Barth Green is a really, oh, wow. really great surgeon. So he uh, left me with a very little tiny scar on my neck because he told me women don't like scars. So he super glued me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's miami funny. yep capital yeah. of vainness right <laughs> well that, i mean it sounds like the miami project obviously is one of the premier um you know hospitals working on spinal cord injury research and and dealing with people that suffer this injury so i mean i guess that's kind of was a blessing in in disguise like having to you know being that you ended up there even though it was is kind of a hectic 24 so, hours leading up yeah to i kind of ground myself in realism so um, I think hope is really important. However, knowing about um, being a medic and uh, understanding how spinal cord injury works, I knew that instinctively when I woke up and I was off morphine that after 22 hours of letting the cord swell, that there were not there was not going to be a high chance of success from being an incomplete and recovery. So I went I endured um, two years of really hardcore rehab, but I kept living my life because I just figured this is how I was going to be for the rest of my life. So, yeah, speaking of rehab, so you you did inpatient rehab. Um, I fought how, how insurance to tooth and nail and they gave me eight weeks, which at that time was considered a lot, which is beyond my comprehension, because 20 years ago, people were in rehab for nine months. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I got injured in 1998 and I was, you know, in there for yeah a good like four months, probably at least. But how, so, and what year did you get injured again? I'm, I forget. 2010. I was 27. Right, okay. Yeah. I'm 39 now. Yeah, I okay. probably shouldn't admit that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't look it. You're, you look great. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I guess, so, so you, you got eight weeks of, of, uh, rehab, which is obviously anybody in in this position knows that that's definitely not enough. And you said you had to fight tooth and nail uh, mm -hmm. just to get that. And so that was all there at the Miami project. Um, it was Jackson Memorial Hospital, which was adjacent. And then I did a lot of different trials and therapies over at the Miami project. I was their guinea pig for a little while. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. So when you, and I know like watching some of your YouTube videos and stuff, I, I saw that you had actually um, gone to, to school at the University of Miami for a while and had been mm -hmm. living in Miami at, at some point um, prior to your injury. Um, I'm not sure like how long after that you, you were injured, but so like, what was the transition out of the hospital like for you? Um, and, and like, where did you transition out of the hospital to and, and, you know, well, during I'm those handful of years of my life and my um, young to mid twenties, I was I went to University of Miami for the last two years, and then I lived and worked in Miami politics, and then I quit my job and I moved down to the Bahamas, which was home base for the last 30, 40 years of my family. Um, so when I was injured and I flew back to Miami, we just got another apartment there that was accessible. So all of my best friends were already in Miami, so I knew the lay of the land pretty well. So I stayed there for about two years until I developed. I had every medical complication on the planet. I was one of those unlucky quads that if it could happen, it did happen from cervical cancer to pulmonary embolisms to cervical cysts, you name it, um, broken bones. Um, and I developed a very large um, spinal cyst that no surgeon in the U.S. that we went to would, would work on me because they, they said until I lose more function. And my dad said, well, she's already lost 80% of her function. How much more do you want her to lose? <laughs> And my respiratory system was impacted. Uh, my dad flew over to China, which I'd spent a lot of years, a uh, handful of years there in my youth, working, playing, all kinds of fun, fun things, ending up in jail in China. <laughs> uh -huh. And um, 
He found that the People's Liberation Army uh, were some excellent surgeons in southern China. And so he said, hey, kid, how do you want to move back to China and undergo surgery? And fortunately, I speak the language. So I said, yeah, sounds like a really great idea. I mean, what's the worst that could go wrong? <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I did want to want to touch on that, too. I know that um, you had sp- you you went there for some, some, I guess, experimental surgeries or just stuff they don't do here in the U.S.? Well, so. actually, it wasn't experimental. It was oh, a simple wow. spinal decompression. Okay. Um, and then I had two, two, um, two cysts in the dura. So um, I, I know it's kind of seems intuitive that everyone that with the spinal cord injury understands the way the spinal cord works, but I've found that is not so. So your spinal cord is essentially a bunch of nerve bundles surrounded by cerebral spinal fluid and then this very thin layer called the and then around that you just have your vertebrae and so when you break your neck people think oh it's because you broke the the vertebrae in your neck but that's not so you can you can break your vertebrae and walk away just fine from an accident what makes you paralyzed is the bruise in your neck essentially when you hit the actual spinal bundles which it's a reaction your body for as a safety mechanism it basically locks the bruise in place so the bruise does not ascend upwards to your um brain stem so it doesn't kill you um and so with my surgery yeah, I had cysts inside that dura, that little um, uh, flap layer surrounding um, the uh, nerve bundles, my spinal cord. And it's a very dicey surgery. I mean, it's a 14 hour plus surgery, but they do it all the time in China, mainly because per capita, more people break their neck in China than they do in the United States because there's 1.6 billion people. So they do it all the time. So they were in and out in four or five hours. So they lanced these giant cysts that were moving upwards in my neck. Um, affecting my respiratory system. I was on oxygen full time. And then they took away a lot of the scar tissue as well. Wow. Well, yeah. And that's one of the most, I mean, we, we've talked numerous times on the podcast about, you know, like preventing the scar tissue and, and this, and then obviously the swelling um, are the two, the, the two main factors in, in uh, the being able, I guess, to, to heal the spinal cord, or like for, for them to be able to go in and, and it's try all about swelling things. and scar tissue, right? Like if you're, right. I wouldn't say fortunate enough, but <laughs> in the dark humor world, if you're fortunate enough to break your neck and be next to an excellent facility within three to four hours, and they put you under a, a hypothermic uh, therapy, and they reduce the swelling, your chances of being a incomplete are much higher, meaning that you can regain function a lot more easily over the years. Right, right. Yeah, that is, and I, that's another thing I love about um, your your videos and stuff is like your dark humor. Like you kind of talk about that quite a bit. It's it's good to, you know, you got to keep that. I mean, you know, if you can't laugh at, at stuff like this, you can't. What do you? No, do? I mean, I'm in the ICU. You and my dad we was day trading, and my dad said, "All right, kid, we got to cut you off morphine because you got to get to work. I mean, you can't slack off on the job." <laughs> and he quite literally did that. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's so good. Um, yeah. So after, so how long after your accident, then are you going out to China with your dad and, and doing this? Uh, Two this and a half years after my accident, around 2012 and a half, 2013, we moved over there. Okay. My 30th, 30th birthday, actually. Oh, wow. And so, so transitioning out of the hospital, were you doing, you were still doing, I'm assuming outpatient therapy and stuff. I was doing outpatient therapy three days a week. Um, once my pressure sore was healed, I, I had a stage three pressure sore right off 
I was on a hard board for 18 hours, um, trying to get to the United States. I started aqua therapy. I did the functional electrical stimulation bike three times a week, uh, adaptive rowing machine for four or five times a week, stretching every single day. And so I've amended my, and, um, I've amended my workouts, but I still work out 90 minutes, five days a week. Nice. Nice. Um, so, you know, how long after your injury do you get the idea and start doing the quirky quad diaries? I saw, I guess, were the first iteration and then it kind of morphed into the uh, the blog and and, it, and its current uh, state. Yeah. So wh- where did question. you start that? And, and, you know, how did you? Yeah. Like, talk about. I don't get that a lot, actually. Not for many years. After my accident, we were so focused on physical survival. And that was it. And it was a very lonely existence. I was just with my family. Every medical complication, I gained 40 or 50 pounds. I was in Depends all day. I couldn't control my bladder or bowel. And and then I had with the cervical cancer. It was a nightmare. And I was miserable. Um, I was just, I was existing. I wasn't living. Um, and we moved to China. It was almost liberating because I just got to leave it all behind. Um, leaving aside the fact that they um, nearly killed me, but we're going to leave that <laughs> one step to the side for a moment. When I was in China, I was, I didn't have a network. I had my parents there, which was amazing. Um, but again, it was super lonely. And my dad is a, was a publisher for decades and he recommended I start writing about my um, adventures in China called the China Quad Diaries. I still keep it up um, just for the domain. And I don't actually don't know who read it. I was just writing for therapy. Really. I, I have no idea at the time. And I did that for a few years in China. And then when I moved back to, when I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina from China in 2015 or 16, I ended up spending an entire year in bed from another major stage four pressure sore. They were the bane of my existence with multiple flap surgeries, you name it. And I started to get on Facebook spinal cord groups. That's how my disability advocacy career started out. And I didn't realize that I've been fighting health insurance companies for so long that there was a need for this in the market and our community. And so I started taking that work national and writing about it and then like normalizing really uncomfortable topics and disability and posting pictures of my hospital stays and tubes coming out of my body and ICU photo shoots that were sexy, hashtag not sexy. (laughs) And that's how the quirky quad came to be is I wanted to do something at the time. It's morphed into something much larger than that now. But at the time that was really just therapy for me. I like, I love, I love to write. I think in writing. Nice. It's like a public, it's like a, it's a public diary. So, you know, I I don't really have much privacy in my life. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's, that's incredible. Really. Um, you know, and I know that, did you have any, was there any like apprehension? Cause like you said, you talk about really anything and like you show pictures of, of pressure sores and, and different things. And, you know, I mean, yeah, like that's not, something a lot of people talk about or a lot of people like kind of dive into like you talk about you know everything from dating and sexuality to friendship and happiness and self-care and stuff like this I mean was there ever any any kind of apprehension at at diving into any topics or you were just like I'm I'm an open book I want to kind of spread the word about this injury I think it's just how I'm genetically wired I've been that way before the accident um you know, for a couple of years, the accident really changed me when I went through a very suicidal period in China and everything medical happened to me, but I've always been an open book. Like that's, I mean, I've had people's, I mean, even in the ICU when I was first injured, I, apparently my pressure sore was unique and I'm not sure why they thought that, but people would start clicking pictures of my butt and I'm like, don't you need like a waiver for this or something? <laughs> so no, I'm kidding. 
what's the alternative? So many of us with cervical spinal injuries live in this constant chronic pain. And as we get older, our muscles hurt, our joints hurt, everything hurts. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you and it's like, I have burning pins and needles that are seven out of 10 in my body, 24 seven, they get to there a nine out of 10. I mean, it's either sit there and cry in the closet alone or, you know, find a way to use that. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. That's, uh, yeah, that's, I'm so glad that you're willing to be like, I'm so impressed by you and like all of the people, like the bloggers that, and the the vloggers that are in our situation that are are putting out for other people. It's so great. Um, It's just a different perspective, right? So it's all about perspective shifts. You can never simulate or really explain or get someone to empathize what it's like to be like with a quadriplegic. More importantly, this secondary hell, excuse my language, that we go through. But if you offer one person a slight perspective shift in a day or you make them smile or you make them second guess or think about something else, to me, that's worth it. Yeah, 100%. Just like what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm trying, you know, I try, I just feel like there's so many people in our situation that have incredible stories. And I mean, like yourself, that it's just like that what you're doing is so helpful for our community for everything. And it's just like, I want to try to get the word out there about that. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely appreciate what you guys are all doing. So, um, yeah, I wanted to know, uh, kind of staying on the, the blogging, uh, path, I wanted to know, when did the uh, the shower talk with Ali uh, on the YouTube channels? When did those those uh, vlogs, I guess, start up for you as well? It started. The idea came about a year ago, and I or two years ago when I was redoing my bathroom when I just purchased my first home, and I love my shower. And I thought, God, how cool would it be to talk about anything? And I'm like, Ooh, shower talk. Oh, it could be sexy and fun, but open and honest and did most of them. I do most of them specifically in my shower. And I made the videos and I kept them for like about a year because I was just so busy with work. And then I finally started getting them edited and started posting them up about eight or nine months ago. I've fallen off track a little bit over the last two months with Miss Wheelchair America, but I have got to get back on that. They're not hard to make. It's more of the editing, but that's how that kind of started from the um, from a construction project to make my first home accessible. <laughs> that that's great yeah and i see i'll definitely put the link for that uh in the in the podcast notes so people can check it out because it's there there was so i couldn't stop watching them over the last you know week and a half since we kind of got this uh podcast scheduled so i wanted to definitely uh you know hear about that so because i'm i'm super impressed by by all of it and just like now the, you're the, motivating the... me to make more videos now <laughs> yeah no i mean just the <sighs> topics that you cover and yeah, I know your husband is on quite a few of them with you, or at least a few that I saw. And, uh, and that's mm-hmm. very, you know, important message to get out there. That there is kind of life after this injury. You're not, you know, you're not dead. Um, you know, you're still, still so much out there for, for all of us. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, you know, move, so I'm kind of interested now in hearing about how you, how they almost killed you in China. Um, and if you have time to tell that story. Um... Yeah, that was a really unique one. So we had to do a lot of back and forth translation for opening up the spinal cord with our uh, surgeons didn't speak English. So I was translating. And then we also had a, a now who's a dear friend of mine who's a translator as well. Um, and my dad is incredibly smart individual. He, he, he can think and sleep and anything science in his life or astrophysics, you name it. And, um, when we went in, we've covered all the major details, but one thing 
um, we forgot to ask about was pain management. <laughs> and uh, because in China, there's a cultural difference in not showing your pain. It's a weakness. So people don't show it. People don't really get addicted to drugs and you name it. And so the surgery went smashingly. They actually saved my physical life. So for that, I'm eternally grateful. But I woke up um, on ibuprofen from spinal surgery in the ICU intubated. They also neglected to tell me I was going to be intubated and I woke up alone. And so I'm thrashing because I'm freaking out and the pain is outrageous. And they tie me down to my bed with purple string. I don't remember why I wear purple, but it was purple. And my brother happened to fly over for the surgery. My parents were there and he came in and he just raised holy hell and, you know, demanded morphine. They had to find it from another hospital and so then they overdosed me on morphine. And so the walls were melting with spiders crawling down. It was terrifying. It was like, I was from Tales of the Crypt, you know? And then they cut me off. And then I went through the drawl. And we went through this a couple times. And then we found a really great Australian um, anesthesiologist who gave us the right combination of pills on our own <laughs> for pain management. And so I was recovering in bed. And then a few weeks after my um, surgery, they're, they also had something called a walking program there. It was developed actually by Rutgers University and Wise Young um, in, in, um, with because called the Kunming Hospital where I was. And the theory was um, to promote um, neuroplasticity, you know, neurons that wire together, fire together, um, really only applicable for incomplete injuries. But having you up and walking and being pushed in a standing frame, very rudimentary standing frame by multiple physical therapists who did not have much training in China, I might add. In any event, the perfect storm happened. They got me up still with my neck brace on, ton of pain, and they started to push my legs back and forth. Um, and we didn't know that I had terrible osteoporosis at the time. And they just cracked my kneecap in half, the tibial shaft, and they um, cracked my shin. So I had a distal femur fracture and a tibial shaft fracture. And I just started getting dysreflexic and my blood pressure was skyrocketing and something was wrong. And we saw a little swelling in the knee the next day and we did MRI and uh, because they didn't want to harm their prize, you know, foreign patient. <laughs> they were like, no, 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 you didn't do that here. No, that was, that's an old injury. Yeah, not so much. Oh. Um, so I had a um, broken leg in multiple places, not cast. They did not put a cast on it. I was in bed in a tiny, what was like a cell-like room in China with like four walls. I could barely get my wheelchair in there for months and months on end. So the neuropathic pain combined with the constant dysreflexia, a non-casted broken leg while healing from spinal surgery threw me into a spot that I couldn't, I could barely eat. I couldn't talk. I couldn't even form a sentence. Like I wasn't, I wasn't Allie. Um, and so that's when I became, went through a very suicidal period, but I say it was, pra I write about it too. I say it was practically suicidal. So I told my family that if I am like this in a year, I have no desire to keep living my life the way it is. It is my decision. I want to give you guys time to grieve or accept or whatever you do, but I want to be responsible about it. And my mind was made up. Um, half the family agreed, half of them didn't. Uh, but I feel very comfortable with my decision. I still do very open about it. Um, I think we can live the way we want any hamburgers and give us, give, give ourselves, you know, uh, heart attacks, but we can't choose the way we want to die. I know it's a controversial topic. One that I am a freedom of dying with dignity, whatever your circumstances are. Um, and then about six or seven months later, the pain went down from like an 11 to like a 10, 10 and a half, very slowly and never fully recovered. I still live with a lot more neuropathic pain and nerve pain than I did prior. 
but I started writing sentences again and speaking. So I decided I would always just hold that. I find, again, this is controversial. I find death extremely comforting. Um, if things get too challenging in life or when I get older, whatever the circumstances may be, knowing that there are countries out there that you could subscribe to services or whatever, knowing that if things are just, you know, I don't become, I, I, I'm not who I am anymore. I have that option. Yeah. No, I mean that, yeah, that's, I completely agree. I, I think that if somebody has thought it through and wants, and that's how they, they want to end their life. That's, that's definitely their choice. Uh, that's uh, I mean, that, yeah, and I don't want to now by means, but I love, right. I know the comfort that it's there, right. That I could go to another country like Switzerland and I could do that, but I just think it's almost cruel to tell people how you, you know, tell them, you know, everyone's telling us how to live and how to die. Right. I mean, Right. No kidding. No kidding. That's uh, so it, it, were all of those complications kind of the reason that you ended up staying in China for the the couple of years that you were there um, post injury? Oh, gosh, not really. I mean, not initially. No, I spoke the I speak the language. It was easy. It was safe. It was lonely. But after about a year, a year and a half, things just mellowed out and life was just it was like Groundhog's Day all over again. I woke up, I went to the gym, I exercised, I came home, I read 171 books that next year and I day traded and I went to bed, rest, rinse, repeat. And it was just, it was a break from constant turmoil all the time. And so I just stayed there as long as I could until I realized, I mean, my parents at that time were in their, you know, approaching 70 or so. So I had to make a decision, where do I move? And as a quadriplegic, as you all know, you have to, if you are so fortunate to have a network and a family, which not a lot of people are, um, you want to be near that family. So my brothers are six hours from Raleigh. My sister's a yoga, a Pilates instructor here. Raleigh was not my first choice. I have built a life and I'm happy with it, but I would still prefer palm trees in Miami and going swimming in 85 degrees every day. But you don't, what's that song? You can't always get what you want, but you can try sometimes. Yep. That's what I have to sing to myself sometimes. That's funny. Yeah. I was that, that was going to be my next question. Like what brought you to Raleigh, North Carolina of all places. So, so his family, so and your, are your parents nearby there too then? Um, I did. We got them. Um, they purchased a condo right next to mine, my community actually. So oh, nice. they are near and dear. They have done everything. I mean, I have a mother who's dedicated 12 years of my, her life to me that she did not have to do that. She's given up everything. And I just, there's nothing that I could, and she even saved my life physically when she rolled me in the, over in the water. So there's nothing I could ever do to repay the incredible kindness, except pay it forward to others. Uh, that That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you're lucky enough to have a family that really steps up, I mean, it sounds like you were, I definitely was. I do. And I do not take that I do not take that for granted because yeah, I work and I mentor and I talk to a lot of fellow quadriplegics and others with severe physical and um, um, intellectual disabilities who are alone and are thrown into the system or they have to go to a nursing home at 31 years old. And I just, it literally breaks my heart. Yeah. It's, there's some very, very sad case, you know, sad cases out there of people that, that don't have the, the support that we have, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a battle for sure. And, and that kind of brings me to, um, you know, I did see a couple of your videos about 
um, you know, fighting kind of the insurance companies. I know when, you know, I was first, I got injured in 98 at 18 years old. So I'm like still living at home with my dad and he ended up having a stroke, like a a very minor stroke, like a year later, um, just from fighting with insurance companies trying to get, um, you know, all this, you know, just all these things taken care of. Like he's expecting me to be out of the house. Like I'm not going to be there bothering him anymore. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, we have this life shattering, uh, thing happen and and it's like you know fall falls on his lap so you know talk about how i guess you got started with because i know you do a lot of advocacy for kind of fighting the insurance companies for what we need and and durable medical equipment versus you know uh i don't even know what you would call it like a non-covered benefit item <laughs> non, yeah there you go so uh yeah you know talk about your work in that in that kind of uh aspect of this um, injury and, and kind of fighting for people that need the help that I mean, cause these insurance companies will just deny anything at any point without. Thinking. Yeah. The first few years after my accident, the first two, three years, I had family fighting for me and I didn't realize it cause I was trying to survive. And then when I started to take over my own healthcare, um, I kept getting denials and I was like, what is going on? And this one battle came for a functional electrical stimulation bike. They're at $30,000 actually. And I got a denial and I worked with the company through the, and they really taught me through the whole appeals process, how that works, the ins and outs, how to read the fine print. Um, And I started taking on battles of my own for bed frames and pressure relieving mattresses and seat elevators and shower chairs. And I realized it's not, I, I appreciate not a lot of people may have the, driver tenacity to go as far as I do. I just, uh, I enjoy being told no sometimes because I look at that as a starting negotiation point. (laughs) Um, But I realize that when you're denied, a huge problem that happens is um, there's so many parties involved. And a lot of the times, simple paperwork, not having the T's crossed or I's dotted or the wrong diagnosis code that they say you have diabetes instead of spinal cord injury, as an example. Um, And then a lot of doctors write three sentences for your letter of medical necessity. So being a writer is helpful in that I could frame the argument such that I would take out the emotion. Oh, look at me. I'm disabled. All right. Here's the evidence. Here's peer review journal articles stating that living a sedentary lifestyle will cost, a, you know, here are the facts and figures for a hospital stay for a pressure sore as opposed to, as opposed to paying $3,000 for a pressure relieving mattress. So I made it a business case and a scientific case. Um, and that formula started working, but it's exhausting because when you get denied, you always get denied first, right? And then you go through a first level appeals, a second level appeals, and then a final determination, whatever insurance you have, it's a slightly different process, but the same concept. Um, and you have to stay on them like 1999. Like what's that song by Prince Party? Like it's 1999. Literally, I have calendars. I mean, I'm right now in the middle of a fight for an osteoporosis injection called Proliax. Mine's very severe. Every six months for six years, it takes between seven to 17 calls, at least eight hours on the phone. They always lose the prior authorization, major medical benefits, and in the pharmacy, they don't talk to each other. So I'm in the middle of it again. I mean, every every six months. So it's 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 literally making, whether it's a post-it or a calendar reminder, but you have to stay on top of these people. And then you usually get one really nice person who will stay on top of your case, but I never raise my voice. I don't get frustrated. I realize every person I speak with is independent of the next. Um, but it's really easy to lose your patience, but I don't, I have, I think I'm genetically wired to just have an extreme amount of patience, which is a good thing and a bad thing. 
And then so I work on now a lot of coalitions. We're writing the item coalition with a lot of people getting Medicare and Medicaid to reclassify seat elevators and power standing wheelchairs as medically necessary. I started partnering with organizations um, around the country and people helping everyone individually. And then I realized I can't keep helping one, everyone individually. I don't have the time. So I wrote a very extensive how to navigate the health insurance appeals process that I partner with national nonprofit Spinal PD on that's hosted on their website. It's on my website too. Um, With a really patient to patient guide. So you got a piece of, for example, you got a piece of equipment approved, but it's out of network. Can you get that approved in network? You can. There's some pieces of paper. It's a lot of hard work, but you can do it. You just need, like, you need to know the right questions to ask, which is, you know, I'm a huge advocate in being your own self-advocate. Um, people will come to me. 50% of people that come to me, they're willing to do their own work. I'm like, here, get me this paperwork. Let me read through it. Let me see what the denial and the justification are. And we work through it. of people come to me and don't reach back out because they want me to do it for them. I am not going, I used to, I am not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a lot of work. I mean, yeah, I don't like if you're able to lead people. And that's just pro bono. Like I will never charge to help a person with health insurance. That's just, that's just part of my pro bono advocacy life every week. That's amazing. That's amazing. Allie. Um, I was wondering, have you had more, cause you know, so my dad passed away a few years back. And so I, I just have, I'm, I just have Medicare and Medicaid now. I don't have private insurance anymore, which is, oh, it seems to be a way bigger pain in the ass than when I had private insurance. At least I could, they, they seem to be more willing to work with us than, than the Medicare and Medicaid. Have you found that, that it's easier to get things or to negotiate? I, I mean, I guess it's not even negotiation, it's kind of like laying out the facts to Medicare and Medicaid versus private insurance is that tougher or um they're different and they're different for different reasons so with private insurance when it comes to prescriptions or durable medical equipment with the appeals process or private they have a little bit more leeway and what they allow and what they don't allow so in that respect it's easier however especially when you have a severe physical mobility impairment and you're a long-term wheelchair user and you need caregiving help private insurers are not they do not provide any private care, maybe 60 hours of nursing a year or something ridiculous. Right. You know, the thing about Medicaid, yes, it's and Medicare, it's more challenging to get things approved because they have uh, like higher like standards um, and, and private insurance companies can go around that if they so choose or you're clever enough to get them to approve it. But with Medicaid provides is the only um, insurer of caregivers, right? And so that in and of itself is a battle. So I have good friends who only maybe who are C6 quadriplegics, they only get 20 hours a week. I have friends who are C6, C4 quadriplegics who get 24 seven hour care because they know the right way to work the system and not illegally. I'm just saying they know which avenues to go down and they know how to justify their costs properly. And they've set up their financial structure such that they have first party need trust or third party need trust or foundations, whatever it is. So the government can't attack all of their personal assets, which is ridiculous. I mean, I even gave up the right to Medicaid by getting married. Uh, And I didn't know much about the Medicaid buy-in program. You can buy into Medicaid no matter your income, depending on your state. However, require lawyers and trusts. And that is overwhelming for most people, let alone financially, you know, not very feasible. Right, right. Now that's, I, I, I'm, that was the thing that drew me to you more than anything was the, was your work kind of advocating 
for uh for people with dealing with insurance issues because that's that's always been like a, a big thing for me as well so with advocacy um and health insurance it's the least sexy topic <laughs> it's the biggest pain in the butt but it's one of the ones that needs to be a lot of people don't want to take it on because they don't know where to start right i i wish i would have chosen a more fun advocacy topic at times i do <laughs> and a more sexy one but right. somehow this one has fallen in my lap <laughs> mm-hmm no, that yeah, that's that's understandable for sure. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of a uh, lot of like dealing with insurance companies is the worst part that like nobody really thinks about in this like dealing with this injury, like coming into it, um, you know, not knowing anything. It's like yeah, you don't even. It's like wait, your insurance won't pay for that? Why the hell not? But um, well, I am so angry at the whole governmental insurance support. I mean, you can only make eleven hundred plus dollars a month, maybe if you're on Medicare and Medicaid. So they're so, especially people that are quadriplegics or you know long-term wheelchair users who need care all the time. You need a lot of money to survive. You got to work a lot. So why should there not be either you're on benefits or you're off? There is no middle ground of transitioning over the course of several years, right? Because think about it. If you're paying out of pocket for caregiver and medical expenses, blah, blah, blah. I mean, 60 to $80,000, that's nothing. I mean, that'll barely, that'll barely cover your, your caregiving costs and your medical costs, right? Let alone your cost of living. And it's right. a much, it's a different system in Europe as well. So that, that angers me tremendously. How to fight that? I, I don't know yet. I have a lot of big battles in my head right now. A very specific battle I'm working on is adaptive exercise equipment. So most insurance companies don't differentiate between a piece of equipment for a wheelchair user designed specifically for cardiovascular exercise, as opposed to a standard treadmill for someone who is able-bodied. No, no joke. I just had a call this morning with a representative um, uh, who works on healthcare and I was speaking with his legislative aide this morning and he said, seriously? I'm like, seriously, well, that's quite an eye catcher. I'm like, well, why don't you take it to the representative again? Cause he works with a lot of Miss wheelchair Americas and let's tackle this baby. You know, that, that would be incredible if you, yeah, I'm rooting you. On I've been working that. on it for years, that, but this is going to be a mission measured in years, not months. Right. <laughs> right. No doubt. No doubt. Well, you know, Allie, on, on to some kind of brighter news. I do want to like dive into the Miss wheelchair America, um, you know, winning the 2023 uh, contest and, and yeah, how did you get involved? I've had a couple of other, um, other winners of, of Miss Wheelchair uh, um, America on the podcast in the past. Um, and yeah, I just was wondering, yeah, how did you get involved? Like what, you know, how did that come about? Yeah, it's a short and sweet story. I, I have a dear friend who runs a Miss Wheelchair North Carolina competition here for the local chapter United Spinal. They host it here in North Carolina. And she said, I would love for you to run. I was like, I'm not really a beauty pageant. She's like, no, no, it's an advocacy pageant. I was like, I don't really know what to do. She goes, you're doing it every single day with your your health insurance. Like, you, you don't even have to prepare. Like, you live and breathe it. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. So um, competing against three beautiful other uh, wheelchair users. And it was a humbly crowned Miss Wheelchair in North Carolina 2022. And then prepared for nationals. Um, all right. So um, at the competition, um, what's amazing to me was not the winning part, was being in a room with 21 other wheelchair users for an entire week. I've never done that before. So the bonds we've built and the friends I'm already chatting with, sometimes on a nightly basis, and the projects, that's what's really special to me. The title, yes, it gives you 
um, a little bit more clout with respect to your advocacy work. And so I will use it for the next year to push for as much change and work with as many legislators as I can because they like the title and the crown as long as it's a nonpartisan issue and that's fine. But everything I do each day, I mean, works towards what I do regularly. So I just have to, you know, it took me longer. It took me longer to figure out how to pin a crown on my head and not have it fall off. I had to watch a bunch of teenagers on YouTube, like put like pipe cleaners in the crown. I'm like, huh? I'm 39 years old and I'm watching teenagers how to like secure a crown on their head. Oh, man. I found that a little ironic. That's so that is incredible. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing though that the you know that the competition. I mean, and, and like I don't even know. It, like you said, it's not even a competition. It's just a, a kind of an advocacy. Um, you know, I guess that it could just, be bigger. It stands to be bigger and have more attention than what it is. But we will work on that. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I know, Ali, you are super busy and I appreciate so much you taking some time out of your day and, and being willing to, to talk to, to our audience about, you know, what you're doing and your advocacy work. And we will definitely link your YouTube and your, your website and your blog, everything. It's been such a pleasure. I yeah. love what you're doing, Jeremy. I absolutely love it. I appreciate it so much. And yeah, we'll, we'll link everything so people can uh, connect with you. And if they do have questions or, or can, you know, concerns about their own, you know, insurance dealings, mm-hmm. hopefully they can, can read the things you've, you've come up with that can help people out. And then, uh, and if they have any, I'm questions, always available. I leave my direct email on my phone. So I am always helping, willing to help anyone that needs it. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, we appreciate you. I definitely salute you and all the work you're doing. Uh, you know, keep up, keep it up. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. I, I, I honestly could go on. Like I wanted to t- touch on your, your husband and your relationship and all that uh-huh. stuff. And uh, as well, How about so we do we a can... part two, let's yeah, do a part sure. two. For sure. We can definitely do that. And yeah, I appreciate you so much, Allie. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Have a talk great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. That was Allie Ingersoll, uh, the one and only, like I, I'm so thankful for her to, for coming on the show and, um yeah i thought she just dropped a lot of knowledge and oh yeah and uh, and i'm waiting for round two jeremy yeah I'm, we're definitely i mean i'm gonna see two. uh i'm sure we'll probably have an emmy and oscar probably a nobel peace pl- prize you know from her yeah. i mean it's amazing what this woman does yeah no she, she is incredible um i really love her uh her youtube channel the the shower shower talk with Allie or whatever oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's so she's just so real and you can you know she's a genuine person and you can really hear that in her voice and you know in the the story she tells and like the the topics she covers on you know between her blog and her youtube channel um she really the, there's nothing held back you know what i mean yeah i gotta watch those and make sure that gina knows that it's a. Uh research for the podcast and not something <laughs> she's not actually in the shower oh, okay. and, uh, right. so yeah. um but she's uh yeah she's incredible she talks about you know everything she i i really enjoyed like her husband comes on quite a bit oh yeah she's about, married yeah yeah so she's yeah, married yeah. as well we're gonna hopefully talk about that a little more in the next uh the next episode we have her on but um yeah i mean her and her her, her husband they got together uh, on a dating site after her injury. And, um, you know, she talks to him about like, what were you thinking when, when you realized I was in a wheelchair and like, um, you know, to at this level of injury and blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, you know, I just thought you seemed very cool and wanted to get to know you more. And, and, 
you know, wanted to at least be friends with you to start with. And, you know, it just kind of blossomed from there. It was, yeah, it was just, it's cool to, to kind of hear those stories and yeah, just for people to be able to see that there's more, you know, I mean, Oh yeah. The, yeah, the, the yeah. sky's the limit after this injury. Yeah. I mean, you still, you're not dead. You can still, you know, things are different. You're going to have some major challenges, but you can still lead a pretty normal life. So. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that you touched on was um, suicide, right? Yeah, that and was And that was pretty that was moving. Intense. That was yeah. pretty moving because, um, you know, as you know, my mom and my uncle passed last year, and right. they lived to be in their 80s. But neither one of them, um, I, I mean, we talked about it before, you know, they had um, uh, mobility issues, right? They had walkers and chairs and, you know, were in constant pain. Um, and, you know, it was kind of my mom, you know, wished that she could have um, taken care of herself, you know, and probably would have wished that there was an assisted suicide for her um, because she talked about it often. You know, she said she had no quality of life and um, my uncle, not so much, but I think in the end it was just like, you know, hospice, let's let's do this. Let's just, you know. We, we understand that this is not going to, this is no quality here. And um, I really support her efforts on that. And, you know, I think, yeah. you know, Gina and I really need to start looking into that now before, um, because I think there is some form in the state of Washington, but I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's a kind of a touchy subject, but, you know, and a lot of people, but, you know, you don't, you don't let a dog suffer, right? Right. And you don't let, you know, other animals suffer. Why would you put a person through a miserable existence? You know? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, yeah, I think if, if that's, and, and she sounded like she made a very educated decision and was like, yeah, explained it to her family. Like, look, it, I'm not happy in this situation. And if things don't improve in the next year, I'm going to take my own life. Yeah. And, but she's a fighter. I mean, yeah. you know, the whole China story. I mean, how amazing is that? She speaks Chinese, right? She goes to China um, and um, overcomes a lot of hurdles there, you know, and has some surgery over there, which, you know, one of the things that she explained was that it's more routine over there because the population is much vast, much larger, right? Right. You know? Yeah, because so. that's like I was, uh, you know, when she s said that she had gone to China for surgery, I was like, OK, well, it must be an experimental thing. And she's like, it's not even experimental. Like they yeah. do this every day over there. Yeah, it's just like typical. Like it's you know, something they do. So, um, you know, that that's an another thing like like her battle with um, pressure sores. Like oh, I'm right. so freaking lucky that I don't deal with that on that level. Like I've had a few like minor things happen, but like I know a few people that we've had on the podcast that were like spent a year in bed, you know. Right. Actually, like, that's one of the things my mom was getting. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I mean, I couldn't even imagine spending. I, I can't like it's tough for me to spend a day in bed, let alone a year. I would be losing my mind. Right. So. Um, you know, she just, yeah, Ali is, is an incredible fighter and warrior and well, she's know. got a lot of resources out there. She's willing to share them with people, uh, people that have any questions about, um, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, questions about navigating the medical systems, right. right. And, you know, 
putting it i love the way she puts it into a business case right mm -hmm. so i mean because that's ultimately unfortunately what our country is all about is the greenbacks right, right and the benjamins but when you you frame things in a business case it really makes a lot of sense you know to these uh, insurance companies right and medical providers you know, the thing that got, that really stood out to me as well uh, when I was going back editing the podcast, listening through the, the interview prior to us recording this, was when she's like, I never raise my voice. Right. Or, like, you know, yeah. curse at them or, you know, get, get an attitude, yell at anybody, um, which is one of the hardest things to do when you're dealing with somebody that doesn't understand what you're talking about and, or like doesn't know the codes or puts in the wrong thing. And then, you know, it sets you back another, uh, you know, month or three weeks right. or whatever the case may be. I mean, yeah, I've been waiting for a new uh, shower chair for nine months now. Like, and it's just, it's getting to the point where, I've called and like just yell at these people and it's probably not doing any good. So well, I need to like really keep that in mind. You know, nothing on the scale that you've had to deal with, but you know, my uncle needed a medical bed and I had to rent one. Right. And so I called up like three or four, finally found one. And the guy said, well, do, are you going through insurance? I said, well, if it's possible. Yeah. And he goes, uh, well, I'll tell you what, we can give it to you tomorrow if you don't go through insurance. So I said, well, how much is it? You know, and he said 300 and something dollars, right? And I said, well, let's rent it for a month for 300 and something dollars. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it because yeah. I need it, right? Right. And I said, well, what's the wait time for one through insurance? He goes, seven months. Oh, I go, what God. do people do? <laughs> I said, what do people do? And he goes, I don't know, but yeah. that's the process, you know? And uh, so it's, it's, it's a shame. It's a real shame. Yeah. Well, I definitely salute everything that Allie is doing. And we will we'll link all of her... Uh, her blog and her website and her YouTube channel, all the places that you can get um, information from her about dealing with these insurance things and just about, you know, anything really regarding living with a spinal cord injury. Um, she does a really good job of, you know, talking about the, the uncomfortable things that we deal with, the, with this injury. Uh, and, and I just think it's, it would be useful for anybody who's newly injured or even like myself, who's been injured for 25 years almost. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it's good to, it's good to be able to kind of have resources to, to look at, you know, when you're, when you're facing some of this stuff. So well, I salute your community, Jeremy, you always amaze me with the guests that you get. And this was another amazing interview and she's quite a champion for people with disabilities. And I'm looking forward to interview part two. Absolutely, yeah. We'll hopefully get to her, get her back on the show here before too long. Uh, but yeah, thank you again to Ali Ingersoll. We will be back next week. And uh, until then, Ricardo, thanks, man. Thank you, Jeremy.